this is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, a post-mortem on the young, restless, and reformed. I am your host, Matt. I am joined by Pastor Michael. We aim to be tough but fair on all things we discuss. Pastor Michael, we don't have a lot of time for you and I to have chit-chat today, do we? We really don't, uh, because today uh, we want to give as much time as we can to uh, our guest interview. Today we have uh, Aaron Wren with us. Aaron is a former technology consultant and urban policy researcher who now publishes the Masculinist Newsletter. I assume some uh, in our audience have read that before. If you haven't, you can check it out, try to subscribe, go uh, see what it's about at themasculinist.com. But welcome, Aaron. Hello there. Thanks for having me. We are excited to talk to you today because I've followed your work and read the newsletter. I started to realize you had a lot of overlapping interest with us on New Calvinism or Young, Restless, and Reform. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, happy to talk about that. I don't think I'm as uh, you know expert or deep into it maybe as you guys were, but uh, I have some thoughts. Aaron, can we just start, you know, just to you know, give uh, people a, a little bit idea of who you are, what you do, maybe give us a bit of a testimony and, uh, you know, kind of what brought you, you know, the little bit that you have or the, you know, the, the more that you have, however you want to say it, uh, your interaction with the young restless reform. Sure. So I, I grew up in rural Southern Indiana. Uh, as I say, I'm descended from Catholic peasant stock on both sides of my family. Uh, but my mother got very interested and involved in the Catholic charismatic renewal movement in, in the 70s and ended up leaving the Catholic Church. So I was actually raised in a rural uh, fundamentalist, you would say, Pentecostal church uh, in rural southern Indiana during the 70s and 80s. Uh, went off to State U and then moved to Chicago as a tech consultant. Really was not at all uh, living as a Christian. You know, I would have said, you know, I believe in God and all that, but it was not at all relevant to my life. And then uh, around 2010-ish, ended up, um, you know, I'd been married and had got divorced. And that was a very, uh, you know, emotionally difficult time for me. It kind of surprised me in a lot of ways because, uh, you know, by all accounts, this should have been an easy, easy divorce. Uh, But, you know, maybe it was the first kind of real adverse experience I'd had in my life. And so like a lot of people, very prosaic uh, story, you know, when you run into personal problems, sometimes you start looking for, for religion. So, Uh, You know, I I went, started going back to church and, you know, kind of really date my own, uh, my own kind of uh, conversion, if you will, to to that time frame. So I was actually attending uh, a, a, call it an Arminian Baptist church, it was non-denominational in Chicago at that time. Uh, But I was talking with the pastor and he knew that I was very interested in cities and urban policy. And he's like, oh, you should check out Tim Keller. And so I watched, it was, at, I think it was actually the 2010 talk that he gave at the Lausanne conference. And I'm like, wow, this guy actually gets it. And he's really, um, you know, really just truly does understand cities uh, in a yeah. way that I've never heard a, uh, you know, a, a religious figure do that. And so I, I really just got very interested in him and started, you know, I bought the reason for God and started, you know, reading up on, on Tim Keller. But, you know, at that point, I mean, I would have not even said I would knew what Calvinism was, to tell you the truth. I was also uh, uh, introduced in that 
uh, time to someone who was doing church planting in Chicago as part of a uh, Keller, you know, sponsored kind of offshoot. And he started talking about, you know, we're planting these churches, you know, it's, it's gospel centered, it's reformed theology, it's these things. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. But kind of in the back of my head, uh, I'm like, what's reformed theology? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> so, I, you know, it's just like a lot of things. It's just like, you know, it's like a consult. This The consultant in me is like, you can never admit you don't actually know the answer. You right. know, like file it <laughs> off and go look it up so that you come back to the client the next time you actually know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I go back, I go home. I'm like, I got to Google that. And so it was kind of interesting. And um, and so um, ended up, uh, so, but again, I, I continued attending the same church. I would have never said I had super theological interest uh, in, in, in kind of reformed theology, but ended up, uh, you, you know, living uh, for a time in Rhode Island, and I attended a, um, a at Acts twenty nine church plant there uh, that was actually in the uh, in the CRC, and uh, it, the the pastor there was like super super deep theologically, uh, but also somewhat um, somewhat critical of the New Calvinism movement and some of the celebrities themselves. So that's when I sort of became more came more kind of uh, uh, maybe marinated in it uh, a little bit. Uh, and so learned a, l- a little bit more about it. I, uh, you know, just because other people were watching them, it's like, oh, you should watch Mark Driscoll. So I was watching the Mark Driscoll sermons, uh, you know, watching some uh, John Piper sermons. And uh, so that was sort of uh, sort of maybe my entree into kind of the Reformed world. And then when I lived in, in New York, I attended a church that I would characterize as New Calvinist. As you know, one of the things is nobody ever admits to being a new Calvinist. Right. Nobody ever says, oh, yes, I'm a new Calvinist. But I would say that the church was very much in the new Calvinist style, huh. um, you know, and, and I feel very good about it. So I, I have, no, you know, a really great church. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me that uh, your kind of on-ramp, you know, a lot of the people that we have uh, had on and interviewed, their on-ramp to these things was usually you know, uh, theological, Hey, I was in this church and we started read this book or something like that. It's interesting to me that your route in, uh, was much more, uh, studying, you know, urban policy, the city, things like that. And now all of a sudden there's this, you know, religious figure in Tim Keller, uh, speaking about the city. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, it was really, I mean, it was certainly Keller's, uh, approach was very appealing to me at the time because I yeah. was very into cities and, you know, a lot of American, um, you know, Protestantism is really detached from cities. I would say evangelicalism is a very suburban phenomenon for the most mm. part. Uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, fundamentalist churches are in more rural and small town environments. And having someone with, you know, an urban sensibility uh, who is a Christian, but also I think very key, actually intelligent and knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, counts count, counted for a lot with me. And, uh, you know, it really resonated with me, uh, you know, at the time. You, you kind of had these intersections uh, over the, you know, uh, course of this time uh, into this movement in various ways. And honestly, I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty, a pretty wide range of experiences within new Calvinism, uh, it sounds to me. Um, and, you know, variation of the different, you know, figures that you listened to and heard from. Um, so what is it, you know, as, as I would say, I, I got to interrupt for one. Go ahead. Yeah. I would not say that I ever considered myself or would have identified myself as part of a movement, a sort of a yeah. Calvinist movement or this kind of self-conscious, you know, gospel coalition desiring God. This whole idea of a new Calvinist movement was something that, you know, it, it's sort of like I only kind of put found out about that later. You know, I never I never would have said, oh, I'm in this very cool uh thing 
you know, it kind of took me a while to figure out about that. Yeah. So what was it, what was it that brought you to uh, kind of see it as a, as a movement? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know the exact triggering event. I mean, I, I could have told you what the, I mean, all this, the key is new Calvinism was basically nearing its peak. I think at the time I sort of got involved with it. And okay. so, you know, I wasn't there, I wasn't present at the creation, you know, the book young, restless and reformed or whatever it was came out long before you know, I was even thinking about it, like the gospel coalition. So this was just kind of part of the landscape um, to me. Uh, and uh, again, my my background was such that, you know, I, I didn't even have like a tremendous amount of um, familiarity with what you might call the evangelical uh, space, having grown up in the kind of the Assemblies of God world in a rural environment in Indiana. Um, you know, I probably knew a lot about the, the religious right figures of the 80s excuse me, 80s and early 90s, you know, the Pat Robertsons, the, you know, the Jerry Falwells, the, you know, Jimmy Swaggerts, all those kind of guys. I, I knew who those guys were, you know, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Um, but, you know, a lot, I mean, a lot of these other figures, I, I didn't, you know, you know, who's Francis Schaefer? I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell you, right? Sort of things. And so um, it, it, it's like a lot, of, it's like a lot of things. I think most people really don't know that much. You know, my experience is most people really don't know that much history on anything. Um, you know, I was working actually for a conservative think tank uh, in New York and really realized, you know, I didn't know that much about political conservatism and where it came from. And so I had to start reading up on the history of uh, political conservatism, the history of church in America. Most people don't know anything about it. You know, it, it really, um, uh, it, I, I think people are right. They're in their church, they're in their world. But there's not really this education on what's, you know, the context of all the different tribes and this, and here's where this came from and that came from. You pick up a little bit through osmosis, but sort of educating people on that. Uh, I, in my experience, it's not common. I even hear in uh, kind of how, how you were looking at it, kind of the lens of, I don't know if it's the right word, but more cultural critic as you look at uh, this you know, this, again, whatever you want to call it, movement, uh, rather than say, you know, a lot of the people that we've interacted with, and maybe even the way that we take it a lot of the times is much more theological. I'm a pastor. And so, uh, you know, my, my take is generally going to be more theological, biblical, um, whereas you have a, a, a really interesting view of more of the, the social circumstances and cultural side of things. You know, I, you know, when I started The Masculinist, I didn't initially plan it this way but very quickly decided that I was going to operate primarily in the genre of cultural criticism, hmm. uh, that I was not going to make a lot of theological arguments. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on theology and about the Bible and many things, and you know, I'm not ashamed to talk about them. But for the most part, what I basically says, if I'm going to engage with people who you know, were seminary professors or pastors, you know, and try to, you know, debate them on theological grounds, I'm not in very good standing, probably. It's not just the credentials, but they probably just know a lot more than I do about it. But what I really saw, um, and I think is one of the biggest defining features of this new Calvinist movement, is that the movement itself is a movement of cultural criticism and cultural engagement and cultural analysis. And really, much of what they say isn't that impressive <laughs> for the most part. 
And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm as good or better, certainly better on many respects than they are on some of the topics that I write about. Because I think like on their, the way they talk about gender, for example, and, and attraction and intersexual dynamics is just flat out wrong. And so I wanted to engage on territory where, frankly, um, you know, a lot of other people aren't engaging. And whereas the, the theological side is, there's not a lot. I don't think I would bring a lot to the table there, even if I did it. You know what I mean? So I try to stick to, to the more cultural criticism side, which I think is, again, it's, it's an underanalyzed sociologically um, many of these movements. So I, I, I wrote an article in The Masculinist about the origins of complementarianism. And I pointed out how, you know, here was the time frame and when it arose, here was the other context going on. And oh, by the way, the majority, a sizable majority of the people who were involved in defining creating it were from a pretty narrow time band of birth years. They're from that early baby boomer cohort. And so that's not, a, it's not, a, it has nothing to do with whether it's theologically true or false. That's a lens at looking at it that many people don't. I think one reason Vermerlin's book, uh, Brad Vermerlin's book, Reform Resurgence, is getting a lot of people looking at it is because nobody had really looked at it this way. And he, for the first time, is is kind of bringing that analytical lens in a structured academic way. And it's like, wow, we never thought about it this way before. So I think it's an under, you know, there's been a lot of theological debates, but I think sort of the sociological and cultural aspects of it has been understudied. Yeah, we had a great conversation with Brad when he came on. But tell us then, what does a cultural critic see when he looks at new Calvinism? Well, I think that Brad Vermerlin did a very good job of laying out, you know, new Calvinism of what it is in his book. So I would just refer you um, back to that. And I, I certainly share his view that its development, maybe even self-consciously, was as part of a, a sort of a power, call it power politics. He doesn't use that term but he uses this model of strategic action field theory where you have these different groups of people who are sort of vying within the evangelical field for control, influence, power. And I sort of see, you know, new Calvinism arising kind of at a time similar to him where evangelicalism is starting to fragment a little bit when the internet uh, is opening kind of new territory to, to be conquered and to stake your claim. And they sort of created this alliance, this movement that was in, you know, essentially staking their claim uh, in the evangelical space. So I, I sense it somewhat in the in the vein of, uh, you know, uh, you know, culture pop, culture power politics, if you will. Again, that doesn't mean it's that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. <laughs> I, right. I fully I fully support using you know you know acquiring power and, and political power. It's not about the acquisition of power is, is itself not. A negative. It's a very positive thing. It's how you actually use it, I think, that is where it gets in. But the, the idea that they were, and I would say one of their characteristics mm -hmm. is that they are, in fact, very, very savvy um, about how this stuff works. They're very smart, sophisticated people. Um, they're not dummies. Uh, they know what they're doing. Uh, again, I, you know, Vermerlin doesn't uh, go into this at all, but I, you know, I can't help but wonder candidly whether James Davison Hunter was a consultant uh, on it. I know he does consulting to church people. He's clearly, you know, had the, he has a bromance with Tim Keller uh, for sure. And it certainly would not be within the realm of possibility that this guy who was like a, 
you know, one of the foremost sociologists of sort of culture power and how it works uh, was involved in like, you know, kind of as an advisor with some of this stuff. And, but they've done, they were very sophisticated in this and they're very sophisticated people. So tell us uh, uh, maybe just a little more on that. What do you mean that they are functioning? You know, most people who listen to our show think of them as the, the people who brought them Calvin, this doctrine. You, you just describe them as cultural critics and people engaging culture, maybe even primarily. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you go to the Gospel Coalition and it's always, you know, it's like, here's what, you know, the movie Avatar tells us about the gospel or so, you know, I, I made that up, but it's, it's things like that. <laughs> they're always, you know, they're always doing that. Um, and again, you know, I, I am probably overly influenced by Tim Keller who's only one and, and arguably not even the mainstream uh, of new Calvinism. Certainly he's a super influential figure, but I mean, here's a guy, if you go listen to his Lausanne conference presentation on city, here's five things you need to know about doing ch church in the city. So here's a guy who clearly uh, is world-class at digesting information about the world. He reads all the books, <laughs> right? He studies the environment around him. And he, he even does field tests, right? If you listen to them talk about starting Redeemer and their Q&A sessions and everything that they did, they're interacting with the world and seeing how it reacts and what works and what doesn't work. And then he turns it into a framework. He, 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 he digests all this unrelated material. He puts it together into kind of a coherent framework. And then he's able to articulate it in a very powerful way to other people. And so he was able to essentially be the cultural guide to the city in a lot of ways. And, you know, here's what's going to happen culturally when you go into the city. If you want to be successful in ministry in the city, you need to be prepared for the fact that multicultural ministry is always going to be hard. It's just going to be, there are just going to be these difficulties that are going to arise, but you just have to accept that and embrace it. You are going to have to be famous for helping the poor. If you want to reach the city, you need to have these gospel movements that cross different denominational and other boundaries. So you, you go through these, these lists of things, and he's giving you essentially a strategy and approach for how you ought to think about, you know, doing ministry in city. If you read the book Center Church, uh, which I think is his best book, it's excellent. It talks all about, here's, here's the ways, here's frameworks, you know, four approaches to this, you know, these kinds of, a, very good. It's just, it's great diagnostic material. Um, that, that you can sort of use. I think what you see too, you know, maybe more relevant to what, uh, you know, what I see, they very heavily sort of coach people and give guidance on how to navigate dating and marriage markets in the modern world. So you got to, there's a, uh, an article out there by Kevin DeYoung on the Gospel Coalition's website, Dude, Where's Your Bride?, and he started talking about his analysis of, you know, the frustrated women who can't, you know, are complaining why there's no good men. And he's giving his perspectives on why that is. That is a classic work of cultural criticism. I think he cites one scripture in there. It's really not even relevant to the topic. And it, it's, um, you know, so it's, it's engaging in it, but it's not really a theological engagement. It's a cultural engagement. It's talking about the world that we live in. And again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying that's the genre. Right. Yeah. When, yeah. you know, a guy like uh, Don Carson says that 
kindness is the greatest aphrodisiac in marriage, which I think is one of the things that was, they tweeted of his. Uh, that's a cult. That's not a biblical statement. That's a cult. That, I would call that in the genre of essentially cultural song of songs. It's it's life right. coaching. It's life coaching, right? So there's a lot of life coaching. There's a lot of um. There's a lot of social diagnostics. There's a lot of trying to interpret the culture. Um, you know, here's how to make sense of what's going on in the modern world. And again, we do have to make sense of what's going on in the modern world. So I think that's, you know, arguably even more than their their theology. Um, you know, is sort of their, um, you know, sort of their claim to fame. If you look at, if you look at Tim Keller, most people, you know, really think highly of Tim Keller because he built a successful ministry in New York City and seemed to crack the code on the, on the city. You, you don't nearly as much hear people, you, you know, talking about all of his theological positions on issues. Now, certainly the way he rhetorically talks about things uh, people love it. His, 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 he's, he's an incredible rhetorician and his ability. That's why they're always saying, what's Tim Keller going to say about this? Even today, it's like, it's like years later, this guy is retired. He's, he's, he's got cancer and people are still looking to him for the answers. You know, the young generation, they're like, help us, Tim, to figure out how to navigate this cultural moment. Uh, so I think that is really what people are looking to him. They don't look at him because of his you know, his systematic theology that he wrote or, or something about that. So it's not that, not that people dislike his theology, but I think his culture savvy and his ability to speak, in, you know, kind of as a public intellectual is by far what draws people, right, to Tim Keller. And like I say, that's what drew me to him was, why it wasn't that I read this like deep theological treatise, it was his, you know, Accurate. I mean, I would this is the point. Highly accurate understanding of the city and his ability to talk about it and communicate true and important things about a very complex environment uh, to you know an audience in a ten minute talk. I mean, that's very, very, very good. So uh, you know, I, that's why I say I think I think it's it's like that. I think that's again, Mark Driscoll. Why did people like Mark Driscoll? Well, he was kind of a showman, and I think there some of them. I don't think being a showman is the dominant characteristic of the new Calvinists. Some of them are, I think, you know, I would, I would call, I would classify him as a showman, but again, it's like, I went into Seattle. I went into this place that's reputedly super secular, hard place to do church and became very successful drawing young men to my services here. And that, that cultural success and culturally engaging with these people, it was he's not, he didn't even have a seminary degree. So he was not, it was not a theology. You know, theology is not, I think, why people were, were going to Mark Driscoll. Right. Yeah. He was such a good marketer. And he, I mean, he, yeah, I remember when he would do, uh, you know, movie reviews and song reviews as part of his sermon, right? Like that was all worked in. It was yep. all part of it. And it was all it was very much a show. We've talked before about, you know, how he's, I mean, it's a lot of his preaching was like a stand-up routine. And uh, he even said that Chris Rock was, you know, the most influential his person on his preaching. So, I mean, very I'll, much so. He was a marketer. Yeah. Yeah. Pass. So I think if you look at it, I think, you know, so there's different, there's different flavors of this stuff. Um, you know, I certainly think that, um, you know, I think John Piper is a more traditional Bible teacher. So I think, you know, I'm not saying that there, there's none of that people really like his, his, his Bible. He's a good preacher. 
uh, but also, you know, good, good Bible teaching. Uh, I, I mentioned, you know, about the Gospel Coalition when I was there in my podcast, I said one of the things that really does distinguish them, I think it's less the Calvinistic theology, uh, but more the idea that these people are very substantive. I mean, they're really, you know, I'm listening to Kevin DeYoung, I'm listening to these people, and they're going through the scriptures, almost like giving you a little mini commentary on the scripture, you know, bringing out all kinds of things about it, that in a lot of these, you know, when I go to these traditional, I haven't spent a lot of time in traditional non-denominational evangelical megachurches, um, you know, some, you know, but when I go to them, the content is very, very light. It's not very rich theologically. It often has, you know, very little theological content. You'll go to a sermon and, um, you know, Willow Creek, for example, used to have, uh, was it Henry Cloud, the psychologist? He'll come, he'll sort of, it's a little biblical, but it's really psychology lecture. It's a lot of psychology, pop psychology. You know, I went to a church here in Indy one time, just wanted to visit it. And it's like, here's, uh, here's how to manage your social media usage. It's, it's very practical life, it's life coaching. It's not, it's not deep stuff. Whereas this kind of new Calvinism people, they, they really are substantive, right? They're not just, again, what Tim Keller has to say about the city, even not just theology, it's very substantive. And for people who are looking for more meat, I think it's very appealing to people. Um, you know, again, I, I don't even know that it has to do with Calvinism. Like these guys are just like, oh, wow, going through the Bible and like, giving me like real analysis of these passages from Hebrews, like that's great. Um, so very appealing to people with a more intellectual orientation, which I think is pretty much their, their customer base. It's predominantly people with college degrees, a lot of intellectual engagement uh, for people who are looking kind of more intellectually meaty, um, meaty uh, thing. It would be interesting to know, I, I didn't see this in Vermerlin's book, what percentage of the people who attend these new key new Calvinist churches have college degrees compared to this percentage of an average, you know, non-denominational evangelical megachurch in the suburbs. My, my gut tells me very highly educated, uh, very highly educated clientele. I, I would, I would guess you're right because for me coming out of a traditional, a traditional evangelical background, the attraction is exactly what you just said, that it was the substantive, seemingly intellectually rigorous option. Yeah, well, if you, there was this book that was written many years ago, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind or something like that by Martin Knoll, I think is his name. And there was this idea that, you know, Protestantism just, you know, it's just not very smart people uh, who are involved with it. Um, and you know, even today, a lot of intellectual types who are Protestant get drawn into Roman Catholicism, or they get drawn into, um, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy. It's just, you know, this idea that there was not a lot of meat for really intellectual people. And the idea was, you know, the Catholics were like serious intellectuals, or they certainly had an intellectual cadre. Whereas, uh, you know, this kind of like Protestantism is, again, it was like this, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that it didn't have one. And I think new, new Calvinism is sort of a response to that. We're going to be more intellectually oriented. We're going to be more serious. We're going to have more meat in what we're doing. And that's appealing to a lot of people. And I so, think it's a legitimate thing to say. It is meatier, more substantive. 
so so our show is called a postmortem on new calvinism we 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 tip our hand a little bit but do, do you think the new calvinism is past its prime has its has its moment come and gone or is it um still here how how would you frame that yeah without question it's in decline uh you know it, i i think it was it came to, it kind of came together it reached its peak and i think like a lot of things you know america um this has been a challenge, I think, with with church in America and and especially with evangelicalism. It's like every generation, every few years, there's a new methodology that comes along that gets hot. And like the you know the non-denominational megachurch model of uh, you know Willow Creek and Saddleback and things like that was a hot thing for a while, and that reached a certain generation very well. And then you know the internet comes along, and now you've got you know new Calvinism. Uh, and it wasn't just new Calvinism, right? There were other things happening. The whole um, neo-Anabaptist movement and the new monasticism got going about that. There was the emerging church uh, that got going. You know, one of the things I started reading about a few years ago, everybody started talking about missional church. We wanted to be missional church. And so there's there's all these things that get going. So there's like a flavor. There's like a flavor of the month. It um, it flowers for a while it, and, it hot, and, then it get, and then it kind of fades, right? And it kind of lasts on. So uh, you know, I would say New Calvinism is in the decline phase. That doesn't mean it's going to go away necessarily um, anytime soon, but I would say it's certainly in the decline phase uh, for a few reasons. One, it was a, you know, as Vermerlin documents, it was a celebrity pastor network-based model. Many of the celebrities blew up their, <laughs> blew up, right? Yeah. So there was kind of a, a blowing up of these ministries, the Mark Driscoll's, uh, you know, the James McDonald's, the Joshua Harris's. So there was a lot of uh, sort of a lot of scandals that blew up a lot of people. Um, you know, the main, we you know that I would call serious people that, that kind of the, the tentpole and, you know, intellectuals like Tim Keller and John Piper have retired. Right. So, you know, they're still active, but, you know, they're not, um, you know, you, you know, they're still, you know, people are still looking to them, but there isn't who is the next John Piper? Right. Who is the next, you know, Tim Keller? It's it's hard to really look and see like uh, people with that that kind of like, you know, high wattage uh, approach uh, coming along, coming along behind them. And so these institutions are still here. Um, you know, they're still networks. They draw a lot of eyeballs. But I think that the star power is kind of waning. And, uh, you, you know, it's like a lot of things, that, you know, it, and it's like any trend in society today. The half-life of a trend is pretty short. It gets shorter. And so it was hot. And now I think people are maybe, you know, uh, move, moving on to different. What it'll be, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it, we'll, we'll see. So I don't think it's, it's like, uh, it's like complementarianism as a set of complementarianism. It's not dead yet. And it's going to be around for a long time. But I think it's clearly, you can see it's like in the decline phase. Um, and and so I, I don't see it. Um, I, I don't necessarily see it reviving like it was before. Uh, is New Calvinism is a product of the would have called a neutral space? Yes, I think very much so. It was this era when um, it was this era when you know a few things were going on. One, cities were kind of coming back after this you know era of decline in the seventies. You know, the, the cities really started coming back in the eighties, but the nineties is really when cities made a big comeback. The 2000s, it really got, it really took off. So you had cities coming back. You had Christianity, uh, you know, moving past this, um, 
you know, kind of fiction that it was the moral majority now recognizing that it's, it's no longer a majority, but it's still, it's still kind of has a place in society. So there's this idea of the pluralistic public square, you know, we can all come engage together in discourse. And even if you're, you know, an atheist and you're a Muslim or, you know, you're a vegan and I'm a Christian, we can all, you know, come together and, you know, work for the common good and, you know, be in the, you know, this society. I think it's notable that, uh, you know, First Things Magazine started in that same era, you know, and it came about this. So, you know, while New Calvinism itself, um, you know, didn't really get going until the 2000s, a lot of the the pre the, the, the celebrities and the things that were built up that kind of congealed into it were more products of, you know, the 80s and 90s in a lot of ways. I think Piper became lead pastor of his church in the 80s. Keller started his in the, in the late 80s. And so they they had to become big. They had to have a pre-ramp to becoming big before they could ally with one another and create the network. So they, they extended back into, into the past. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's what I would call the neutral world, this idea that Christianity is no longer the, as a normative place in society, but it still has a place in society. It's not viewed as it is today as essentially undermining the new public morality or, or, or sort of a, a threat to the new social order. It was sort of a, you know, sort of a, a um, you know, like a personal affectation you might have. I have wondered if a lot of the things about new Calvinism that would not be very well adapted to this newer cultural moment. Yeah, um, that, that's a good question. I mean, I will say they, exp- one of the things that they did uh, strategically was to downplay politics. And so the kind of evangelical world prior to this new, no new Calvinism was very much associated with the religious right and high levels of identification with, you know, Republican politics. Now that itself was a new and frankly, not especially long last, you know, that, that was an era itself. Uh, you know, the, the original evangelical president was Jimmy Carter. And I think it was Time Magazine's Year of the Evangelical was 1976. And, you know, certainly in, into, in the 1980 election, a plurality of, of um, evangelicals in America would have identified themselves as Democrats. It was not still a majority, but it was a plurality. Uh, I took that out of a James Davison Hunter book from 1982. He showed that it was still 40-something percent Democrat in that era. It was really in the 80s that there was this massive flow into the Republican Party, and it, it kind of became very politically mobilized. You know, guys like Tim, you know, now, now Tim Keller is, is quite obviously a man to the left, right? He's, he's somewhere on the left. I think some of these guys were on the left. Others may have been more conservative, um, you know, personally conservative, but they de-emphasize politics. We're not about, you know, we're not about... That's that's how you can really tell it's a neutral world strategy. Positive world strategy for for these evangelicals was religious right, act, you know, political activism. These guys are like we're going to be post political, and we're going to de-emphasize the hot button culture war issues like abortion. We're just not, you know, we're going to be anti-abortion, but we're just not going to we're just not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, and you know, we're not going to you know, go protest at an abortion clinic in Manhattan or something like that. So they tried to essentially downplay all of the things that put them in, in conflict with 
you know, in conflict with the secular culture. And it was very, it was very successful in that era. And now it's become progressively more difficult to avoid conflict um, with secular culture. And, uh, you know, so you, you start to see that. So you even saw uh, a few, you know, not long ago, uh, I can't remember exactly what year, it was probably three or four years ago now that uh, Tim Keller was going to get this Abraham Kuyper Award from Princeton Theological Seminary and he got canceled, yep. right? So it's like even a guy yeah. like Keller, who is the least offensive person you can possibly imagine, <laughs> you know, is getting canceled, you know, because right. they don't like it. And so it's this idea that this idea that you can you can you can kind of like, well, we'll just de-emphasize this and be a little more winsome. Doesn't it didn't it's, it works less today than it did then. And uh, so, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like today. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't really see a, you know, a well-tuned uh, movement emerging that would be equivalent to that. But I think, you know, their, their tactics are going to be less effective. Their strategies are going to be less effective. Well, thanks for joining us for this per- first part of our interview with Aaron Wren, Pastor Michael, New Calvinists as Culture Critics. Interesting stuff, right? Yeah, and it is just heating up because uh, coming up next week, we have a continuation of the interview where we're going to get more into uh, gender and complementarianism and all of that good stuff. So uh, this is not something that you'll want to miss. Make sure that you uh, go ahead, check out The Masculinist. Uh, While you're doing that, go ahead and go over to iTunes or wherever else, rate, review, share this podcast, make sure it gets out there. And uh, that way we can keep doing these kinds of interviews. And, and I'll just give you one free bonus. He mentioned, did the Gospel Coalition do an analysis of Avatar? Justin Taylor wrote an article called Avatar, the Gospel According to James Cameron. 